please turn your Bibles to Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, It's a story of the temptation of Jesus. Starting with verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you on their hands. I will bear you up unless you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. So this sermon today is kind of the kickoff to this semester's Sunday school class, where we'll be studying the life of Jesus Christ in somewhat chronological order. Uh, We just celebrated the Christmas season where we ponder the miraculous incarnation of Jesus uh, to this world. We call him Emmanuel, God with us. So now, as we look in Matthew 4, we see Jesus beginning his ministry. And one of the things it begins with is this temptation story. And I think the story teaches us the following things about temptation. That one, we, we fail our temptation. Number two, Jesus defeats his temptation. And number three, Jesus conquers all temptation. So the first point, we fail our temptation. Second point, Jesus defeats his temptation. And the third point is that Jesus conquers all temptation. So we, we fail our temptation. We, as God's people, the nation of Israel, have a tradition. We've always failed our past temptations. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden. They were tempted by the serpent. They failed the temptation. So Adam and Eve ruined their relationship with God. After being freed from Egypt, the people of Israel were led into the wilderness like Jesus in Matthew 4. And even though slavery in Egypt was hard, they thought that their newfound freedom was too much of a burden to carry. So they were tempted at many opportunities to turn against God, and they do so many times. And that comes to a head when Moses is returning from Mount Sinai, and he's just conversed with God. He has the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. He walks into the camp and the people are worshiping a golden calf. Even though God was in their midst, they decided to create their own God and worship that and enlarge the gap between them and their creator. And those are two prominent examples of failure, but the Old Testament is full of men and women who are supposed to be godly people succumbing to temptation. Saul, the first king of Israel, is tempted to visit a witch doctor before battle instead of praying for God. David, the second king of Israel, is tempted to sleep with the married Bathsheba, which he does, and then he's tempted to kill her husband, which he does. 
And then the third king of Israel, Solomon, David's son, is tempted to use his God-given wisdom to enhance his personal wealth more than he could ever need. The entirety of the Old Testament from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity says this basic story. Someone who should be godly weighs two options in their temptation. And they think that if they do the wrong thing, they'll somehow benefit from it. They'll receive pleasure. They'll get away with it. And they won't have to suffer any negative consequences. In the distance, every time that happens, is the distance between God and his people grows. We understand that as Christians because we still fall in temptation. We know that before we became Christians, how we were falling to temptation all the time. So what exactly is temptation? Why do we succumb to it? And is there any hope? According to the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, temptation can best be defined as a test that determines our identity. Usually, people in the Bible succumb to temptations of irresistible materialism, sexual immorality, or ambition. Now, when we think of temptation, including that definition, we think of temptation as being on the precipice of a major sin, right? A moral dilemma, maybe an ethical decision at your workplace, maybe a question of doing something illegal or legal. But temptation is that and a lot more than that. Temptation is simply the decision whether to sin or not to sin, no matter the size or scope. So the Bible tells us to take every thought captive. It tells us to only think about what is noble and praiseworthy and right. And if it's telling us to do those things, then the Bible is telling us that temptation is a moment-by-moment reality in our lives. We aren't just tempted in the big things, but also the small things. Tempted to be pessimistic. Tempted to gossip. Tempted to be rude. Tempted to be angry. And the reason we fall into temptation is because the ultimate temptation that humanity faces has already come and gone the way of failure. And the temptation is who will sit on the throne of my life? Will God become the God of my life or will I become the God of my life? Who will rule my heart and my mind? And everyone, the Bible says, who has ever lived has failed that original temptation. When we are told, choose this day whom you will serve, humanity answers me. I will serve myself. Humanity is permanently stuck in the wilderness. Our spiritual adversary is laughing at us because we're the fish that always takes the bait. And it's like a burden is strapped to our backs and we're heading down a path that we can't get off of. And that path will eventually lead to things like broken homes, unethical business practices, racism or theft. Also small things, gossip, annoyance pettiness. Without Jesus, we lose almost all of our daily battles with sin. And that sounds very drastic. It's a lot of gloom. Are we doomed to failure? And of course we aren't. And it starts in Matthew 4. In this story we see that Jesus defeats his temptation. That's our second point. Jesus defeats his temptation. The first question we ask is why was Jesus tempted in the first place? Theologian Frank Thielman notes that Matthew's gospel has several stories, such as this one in Matthew 4, in which Jesus should be directly compared 
with the nation of Israel. Jesus is supposed to embody Israel. That's how we're supposed to read the story. The difference is, when Israel in their past has failed to obey God, Jesus succeeds. So in other words, Jesus was tempted to sin because Israel was tempted to sin. Jesus was tempted to sin because we are tempted to sin. Now, this passage is not a prescription for how to overcome temptation. It's hard to look at the story and know exactly what to do when we're faced with a decision between pleasurable sin and unsatisfying goodness, or whatever that right option might be. But in other gospel passages, Jesus does give us practical advice for overcoming temptation. He says, love your neighbor as yourself, but he says everyone is your neighbor. He once told crowd that if their eyes cause them to sin, then gouge them out. If your right arm causes you to sin, then cut it off. So from Jesus, we learn that our flee from temptation must be absolute. We can't dabble in sin. We can't circumvent tough choices. Our flee from sin and temptation must be bold. The New Testament is full of encouragement in this area. In 1 Corinthians, we learn that because Jesus was tempted as we are, there is always a way out of sinning. In 2 Corinthians, we're advised to take every thought captive. And also, the New Testament gives us lists of Christian values that directly counteract our urge to sin. We have the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 3, I mean 5, uh, in a similar list in Colossians 3 and Titus 3. Now, we also have the armor of God passage in Ephesians 6. But in Matthew 4, we don't have a list, we have a story. But we can still learn a lot from Jesus as he defeats his temptation. The first thing you notice in this passage is that it says Jesus was led by the Spirit. We should stop right there and understand that this is very important. What does it mean that Jesus was led by the Spirit? He was mission-oriented. He lived according to God's will and plans for his life. Contrast that with Israel when they were led into the wilderness. They were not in the mindset that they were being led by God's Spirit. Contrast that with David when he goes out on his terrace and spots Bathsheba. He was not in the mindset of being led by the Spirit. And you can contrast that with me when I'm at work and someone does something that is less than helpful to that day's mission. Oftentimes, I'm not in the mindset that I'm being led by the Spirit. One thing we forget about Jesus is that he began every day of his life in the personal worship of God. He prayed constantly, but especially in the early morning hours when everyone was asleep. The Gospels make a note of that. And though the Jewish people at the time knew prayer was important, Jesus was radical in his prioritization of prayer. And when I see that Jesus thought it was so necessary, I'm convicted in my own prayer life, and I feel like a fool for thinking it's optional. Now, when the devil confronts Jesus, Jesus has fasted 40 days and has to be extremely hungry, perhaps closer to death than at any previous time in his life. So the devil first tempts Jesus to convert rocks to bread. Now, there's nothing wrong with Jesus eventually breaking his fast and eating. After this temptation story, that's exactly what he does. But the devil is not a healthcare provider. The devil is not a good nutritionist looking out for Jesus. The devil 
is not worried about Jesus' hunger pains. He's wanting to offset his mentality as a Messiah and a believer in God's providence. Remember that Jesus was the most mentally tough person to ever walk the earth. So if he was led by his father to go to the wilderness and fast for 40 days, and he was going to humbly and prayerfully, by the Spirit, go to the wilderness and fast for 40 days. So make no mistake, the suggestion that Jesus convert rocks into bread is not a good suggestion. It's an attempt by the devil to come in between Jesus and his Father's will. Ultimately, if you think about it, it's an attempt by the devil to come between Jesus and the ultimate plan of salvation. And what's Jesus' response? Scripture. Specifically, he cites Deuteronomy 8.3, saying, Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This response confirms that these two are locked in spiritual warfare. And at this point, we already see Jesus overcoming temptation where humanity has failed. In Exodus 16.3, the Israelites complain that they've been led by God into the wilderness only to be left for dead without any food. They're convinced that God is just going to let them starve and die. God knows better. Hence that phrase that comes out of Deuteronomy, man cannot live on bread alone. Jesus, on the other hand, trusts God's providence. Jesus knows that God will not let him starve. It's also clear from the temptation story that Jesus relied on God's word. And we see pictures in the Old Testament telling us to rely on God's word, what it means to rely on God's word. But I submit to you not until Matthew chapter 4 do we see the practical implications of a person whose soul rests only in God's word. This means the application of the wonderful wisdom found in scripture. Sometimes you'll hear a fan say that they bleed their team's colors. San Francisco Giants fan may say they bleed orange and black. Or a Patriots fan, Danny, might bleed blue and red. Jesus, from an early age, bled scripture. Not necessarily to be the smartest theologian. Not to one-up people in his Sabbath school class. Not even to feel good about himself. Jesus bled scripture because he understood the Bible to be the most honest interpretation of the human race, God, and everything else that matters. So when we meditate on Scripture, when we memorize Scripture, when we preach a gospel to ourselves, just like we sang in that wonderful song, we too will better understand God's providence in our life. Maybe not understanding circumstances, but understanding, as it's clear in Matthew 4, Jesus understands that God is in control. So Jesus and Satan moved from the wilderness to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. There is some debate on exactly why Satan says what he does. But I think it's pretty clear, and it's understood that in verses 5 through 7, that if Jesus was to leap from the top of the temple, people would notice. And if angels saved Jesus, it would appear on the ground as some kind of sign. And Jesus would appear to people as a first century Superman or superhero. He'd be popular with the people and would be able to enjoy his celebrity. This time the devil uses scripture. And this is eye-opening and horrifying. What is the devil doing using scripture? And for that matter, what is the difference between Jesus using scripture, or us using scripture, and the devil using scripture? 
The difference is that Jesus has faith in God's word. To Jesus, God's word is the key to life. He says it's even more important than bread. To the devil, scripture is a trump card. It's a textbook. It's an almanac. But Jesus knows that the very essence of the wisdom of God, that the Bible is the very essence of the wisdom of God in the here and now. And let's be glad he did because his knowledge of Scripture and his love of Scripture, his understanding of it, has massive implications for the entire universe. And I beg you to hear me on this point because I'm a young person. I'm a young man. I'm not a fountain of wisdom. A lot of you in this room today have a lot more life experience than me. You're a lot wiser than me. But I want you to hear me because when I was at my lowest point in my life, it was because I viewed this as nothing more than an almanac, as nothing more than a trump card, as nothing more than a textbook. And as a result, this book felt like a millstone around my neck. It felt like a trap. And only God's grace brought me back into reality. I beg you to consider this book as a life source. I'm not saying you can't ask serious questions. I'm not saying you can't have critical questions or that you can't have doubts that you talk to people about. We should have all those things. Those are good things. But please do not approach this book as a cynic. I beg you to consider this book as a key to your life and recognize it for what it is. The true story of God entering this world and his grace entering this world in which we see the weak are made strong, the poor are made rich, the wisdom of this world is made foolishness, and the seemingly foolish things we believe are true and actually wise, and where the dead are made alive again. So getting back to verse 7, despite the devil's quoted scripture, Jesus knows he's not on this earth to be a superhero. In fact, he's actually on the earth to be a servant. Jesus again rebuffs him, this time quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus tells the devil he's not going to test his father. Additionally, Jesus is not going to get caught up in his own vanity. That's a big lesson for us. In what ways do we let our own vanity get in our way of completing missions for God? One of the major reasons we fall into temptation is because if we think we do the wrong thing, we're going to benefit. It's pleasurable. And we're going to get away with it. We desire the pleasurable sin over the cumbersome flee from it. Jesus, as we've said many times, is not led by his emotions or his desires. He's led by the Spirit. He doesn't leap at an opportunity to satisfy himself. It's such a good lesson for us. Instead of desiring satisfaction, he responds with scripture. So allow me to ask, what does Jesus have in this passage that we don't also already have as Christians? Jesus is equipped with the spirit and the word. If you believe Jesus is God, if you believe his death covers your sin, if you convert to Christianity and you make Jesus your king, then you have the same spirit. And the same word that gets Jesus through his temptation. You have the guidance 
and the ability to flee temptation. The only question is whether or not we will use the resources God has blessed us with in order to escape our temptation. But let's say you feel powerless, as we all do, when thinking about how we'll ever face temptation, especially when we're compared to Jesus. The end of the passage provides great news. Jesus doesn't defeat, just defeat his temptation. He conquers all sin. He conquers the negative consequences for all failed temptations once and for all. There's a difference between the implication of the gospel and the heart of the gospel. The implication of the gospel is that when Jesus sets you free from the negative consequences, eternal consequences of temptation, when Jesus sets you free from sin, you will have the ability to become a morally better person. You'll have the opportunity to flee temptation just like Jesus. There's tremendous room for personal growth. You could even have years and years of spiritual growth in your life. Conversely, you could also have years and years of steps back. That's the implication of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is this. When Jesus sets you free from those things, you're free. Period, full stop, end of story. That's where we come to our third point. Jesus conquers his temptation. Jesus conquers his temptation. The final temptation of Jesus is the devil's last desperate attempt. It's creepiest, actually. The devil takes Jesus to a bird's eye view of the world and says, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. The devil is trying to entrap Jesus in the ultimate lie. The lie that Jesus, the creator of the universe, has somehow lost his place in God's throne room by becoming a human being. Satan is telling Jesus that he has lost his glory and there's nothing Jesus can do to gain it back. The devil thinks that Jesus has this great fear, the fear that he'd come down to earth as a sacrifice but wouldn't finish the job. This is the climax of the story, the climax perhaps of Jesus' life to this point. Not only is he hungry from his intensive fast, but remember, Jesus has already been a human being for 30 years kind of living in utter humiliation. He's a poor carpenter in first century Palestine. And if Jesus sends one time the entire plan of salvation for God to be reunited with his people, will be over and lost. The devil is hoping that Jesus is fed up. The devil is hoping that 30 years as a poor man will convince Jesus to just give up. At the climax of the story, the question is, who will sit on the throne of Jesus' heart? On this day, whom will he serve? This is where we give up. This is where I give up. This is where we say, I'll take the pleasure, I'll take the easy way out, and we walk into the trap. But this is where Jesus says, be gone, Satan. Jesus will serve the Lord, not his needs, not his desires for pleasure. Here's a God who understood that we on our own, could not conquer temptations. We'd fail time and time again. Here's a God that could have left us to our own devices as we suffered in a tailspin of deception and anger and all those other things that we've talked about today, culminating in us becoming the very essence of evil. 
But instead, Jesus decides to suffer evil and all those things in our place. He says, believe in me and you will have eternal life. We're going to continue to lose our daily battles with temptation. But if you're a Christian, you don't suffer the negative consequences, the negative eternal consequences of those failed temptations. If you're a Christian and you lose your daily battles, Jesus has already paid for those in full. You may suffer the consequence of a bad decision. But today, as we prepare for another week full of big and small temptations, I beg you to constantly consider Jesus, the man who not only gave us the tools to flee our temptation to sin, not only the man who defeated his own temptation, but the God who paid the eternal consequences for all of our failed temptations. What does that really look like? Imagine a town square in 18th century America. Every day on a platform in those squares, slaves would stand ready to be auctioned. They had rusty chains around their neck and their hands and their feet. They had sunburns and scarred shoulders and they had rotting teeth. And masters, slave owners, would come from all over the region to buy these slaves. The vast majority, most masters who bought the slaves deprived them of the most basic of human institutions. A name, square mills, clothing, decent shelter, children, marriage. Some masters who would buy the slaves would treat them kindly, giving them basic safety and courtesy. A very, very select few masters would buy slaves that they, that they would eventually set free. But not a single master, zero, ever got up on that platform themselves and said, I will stand in these slaves' place and set them immediately free. But that's what Jesus has done for us. We were slaves to sin and slaves to fail temptation. And Jesus says, be gone, Satan. Be gone, temptation. Give me your rusty chains. Give me your indignity. You can't handle the chains. You can't handle eternal consequences for failed temptation. So I will on your behalf. Because you are now my brother. And you inherit my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you, first of all, for sending your Son And we praise your plans for our lives. We thank you that you lead us through your spirit. And we pray that for this upcoming week, that you allow us to flee temptation. That you allow us to live according to your word. Thank you for always being there for us. And we pray that we will grow in your grace. Amen.